0: Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. I'm your host, Kenan Huberfeld. And I'm looking forward very much to this episode, which I had hoped to record uh, before uh, Christmas and before I went off virtually to Italy to teach the seminary. This year, I was not able to travel to Italy. But here we are. At any rate, if you're watching this on YouTube, it hardly matters. You're going to watch it when you want to. So it doesn't matter when I originally recorded it. But here we are to start Second Samuel or the second book of Kings, depending on how you reckon the names and numbers of these books. Let's just have a brief review about that because we're going to start not only moving along in these books, but also jumping around a bit. Again, when you go back and look at the episodes, you can watch them in whatever order you like. I gently encourage you to maintain the order that I have chosen for the, these episodes. I think it will be helpful, especially now, because we're going to start jumping around again a bit. We're going to finish 2 Samuel and then move to another part of the Old Testament before going back to these historical books. Just a reminder then, and how we, we reckon the names and numbers of these books. We have in the Douay Reims Bible, for instance, which follows the, the Vulgate and pretty much follows the Septuagint, the Greek version of the scriptures translated by the Jews, for the Jews, before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but which was a very providential preparation for the coming of our Lord, in that the Hebrew scriptures were then translated into Greek and then read throughout the world before our Lord came. And following that tradition, the book we will be, we'll be reading today is 2 Kings, then be followed by 3rd and 4th Kings, and then, one and two, so first and second parallelopomenon, a word that's hard to hang on to, remember. In the Hebrew tradition, if you were to have a more modern Bible, you would likely find this numbered as Second Samuel, and it would be followed by First and Second Kings, which gets a bit confusing. Right? So what's coming up after this would be First and Second Kings rather than Third. And Fourth Kings. It gets even more confusing if we go back to the original. Find that originally, when these when these books were originally composed, and if we follow the tradition that this book was written by Samuel, the last of the judges, it is in fact simply the book of Samuel, the book of Samuel, and it was cut into two later on. The usual explanation for that is that it was cut into two because it was so hard to preserve in one. It was very hard to preserve this and carry it on as simply one book, and therefore it was logically divided in two. It was, it was divided at a very logical place. We left off in 1 Samuel. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but here we're ready to dive into 2 Samuel. But the division was 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 well done, which means that even though that division was done by the Greek translators, it was translated then into 1st and 2nd Kings, or 1st and 2nd Kingdoms, the way it is in the Greek. Uh, Eventually the Jews, even in their Hebrew Bible, would follow this. Later on they would adopt this division as a logical one, and they too would number it, the first and second Samuel. That then would be followed by the Book of Kings, of Kings, which later on would be divided by the Greeks, the Greek translators and the Jews in Alexandria into third and fourth Kings. And again, that would also be be adopted as a logical division. But originally it was just the Book of Samuel, the Book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. Or, translated into Greek as first and second, again, divided into two, and first and second, perilopomenon, which means, in Greek, it means the things set aside or the things left out. Why? Because Chronicles, as we saw very briefly last time, and we'll see briefly this time as well, serves as a sort of commentary. Chronicles is not... Uh, continuing the history that we're reading right now, it's the same history, it's parallel, it's the same time period. It's, it's a commentary that was written later, so divinely inspired commentary that came later, it was a time after the exile. After the exile, looking back on these historical facts that are related in the Book of Samuel and the Book of Kings <clears throat> and reflecting on them, which is very important, it's very, it's very noteworthy that the Jews would do that after the exile, that they would have judged of course, inspired by the Holy Ghost, uh, to to reflect on these events of history and see them as still somehow having some poignancy, some meaning, some importance, even after the exile, not simply as historical facts that are dead and gone. That's why Chronicles is important. But often, too, Chronicles will be very important for us. It will It will add some minor details, seemingly. that that help us to understand the text better. So we read them together. That's why we're reading them together. We're not simply going to open up Chronicles and go through it. That's not going to be part of our work here. We're using it just like last time as a commentary in the background. And so later on, we will not go on and simply read Chronicles separately. We're reading it here as as a commentary. Chronicles will insist just as much as the second book of Samuel on, on the principal event here which we might regard as sort of the principal event of the whole Old Testament. Right, the Old Testament, remember bringing the testament is just another word for alliance or covenant. So we've seen covenants already in the Old Testament, and now we're going to read today about the very the most important one of all, most important one of all, the covenant with David, what we've been building up to. So much so that we might be tempted to conclude after this to say, well, perhaps indeed, and indeed, there are some modern readings that are like this uh, from by non-believers that say, well, in fact, maybe that's it. Maybe the, what we get today in the, the Davidic covenant is the fulfillment of everything that came before, and that's the end of it. We'll see that there are great problems with that interpretation. And in fact, well, the problem with this is that the covenant that we will read about today is so great, so vast, extends so far, that what we will see right away as we read on from now on in the Old Testament is that nothing in the Old Testament will ever measure up to what has been promised in this covenant, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. Nothing can possibly measure up to it, except one man, one man to come. One man to come to fulfill what has always been here with this, this, this very pregnant tension that's been going on throughout this covenant. Everything that's been going on up until now, building up to the Davidic covenant is that nothing's been going right. Even the very nature of what, what led to being to a king first coming that this was not the will of the Lord. It was the will of the people, clamoring for it, and he gave them what they wanted. But with the caveat that at some point, he's going to get what he wants. They rejected God as being king, but one day God will be king. They wanted a man as king, but he'll come as a man and be a king that way. Let's have a look then. The first chapter of 2 Samuel is quite memorable. It picks up exactly where the action left off. Last time, so last time we were in the midst of battle and Saul and Jonathan are killed, right? Very memorable, and so we read about this now. What happens? It picks up as a very exciting story. These books are very exciting to read. At least I hope you think so. I certainly do. Um, <clears throat> after the death of Saul, beginning in the beginning of chapter one, we're to read some long passages today together. I think we're gonna find that very enjoyable. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, David remains two days at Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and earth upon his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and did a bison. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle, and many of the people also have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told them said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gaboah. And there was Saul leaning upon his spear and behold the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and slay me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the armlet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my lord." Now, if you're remembering from last time, is that exactly how it went for the, slaughter, for the death of Saul? Now, wasn't that, that's not how Saul died. No, Saul, Saul fell on his own sword. He committed suicide. Right. So he's embellishing the story, this Amalekite. First of all, who's an Amalekite? He's saying, Amalekites, are they friends of the Israelites? No, they've been their enemies since the beginning. Remember that battle long ago with Moses, right? When Moses there holding up his arms, right? And every time he held his, up, his arms in cross form, then things would go well for the army. So the Amalekites were, they've been harassing the Israelites ever since they tried to enter the Promised Land. So here's an Amalekite, though, who says I'm gonna, I, he's an opportunist, that's what he's doing. And now we're gonna see how David works, right? So he, he's an opportunist and he says, "Well." I'll just embellish the story a little bit. So there's Saul dead. And so he just, I'll just take the crown, right? Here we go. Take the crown on the armlet and say, look what I did. I'm going to ingratiate myself for who's certain to be the new king, right? No, everyone knows that now. David's definitely going to wind up being the new king. Jonathan's dead, right? Everything's going David's way. So here's, here's me getting in on the ground floor. So I'll even embellish the story a little bit and say, you know what, I even, I took care of it for you too. I made sure he was dead. No, and here you go, here's his crown. How does David react? David smiles and says, thank you, my friend. No, David took hold of his clothes and tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And then David turned to the young man and said, well, thank you for your services. Where do you come from, he said, he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, So, king killer, are you? Guess what? Got no need for those. <laughs> Sick them, boys. All right? That's the end. Well, okay, that was the paraphrase. So, they, <clears throat> David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, fall upon him. And he struck him, so he died. And David said to him, "Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed.'" Wow. So, he doesn't miss a beat, David. Right? He said, well, yeah, "A king killer? Yeah, a regicide? Uh, don't need him in my court." Nope. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that position uh, does not need to be filled. Right? So, that we see a little bit of how David, how David's mind works, though. You know? And then David. David goes forth, and, and then David, whom we already know is the great the great musician, the great writer of songs, now composes the very beautiful song in honor of Saul and Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Galboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor upsurging of the deep. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And it continues. Incidentally, that's... uh, Today we're celebrating the Feast of St. Peter's Chair at Rome I think about the saints Peter and Paul. This, this song this song of David is adapted for the office of the holy apostles, Peter and Paul. And it says the, those lines there, it says, lovely, uh, delight and lovely in life and death, they were not divided, talking about Peter and Paul. So they, they, the church in her liturgy adapts this, this song of David to Peter and Paul from Saul and Jonathan. Very good, we move on now to David In chapter 2 now, David will be anointed, he'll be anointed king of Judah. Remember, David is from the tribe of Judah. He's from Bethlehem, right? He's from House of Bread, Bethlehem. And now he's going to be anointed king of Judah. anointed king of Judah and... Now, what happens here? We don't know, but the only time we hear about this, wasn't he already anointed? Didn't something happen there? Remember? when he was first sought out, after the Lord definitively rejected Saul. Saul remained on the throne for quite a while after that, but the Lord rejected Saul, and that was when Samuel went out to seek out young David and anointed him, anointed him king already back then. We're not sure then how old is David when this happens. We're not sure. All we know is we're given an age number already back then. Maybe that's the age right now, Maybe that's referring to right now, or maybe it was back then when he was anointed, but all we know is that what's preserved in the record is the age of David's anointing is 30. <laughs> so, he's 30. He's 30 when he's anointed, right? No, I don't know, I thought maybe somebody mouthed 33 and was hoping there was 33. No, you're hoping it was 30, right? 30, might well, makes sense, the beginning of our Lord's public ministry, right? So, our Lord, and we'll see, this pattern is going to continue now with several other figures throughout the Old Testament that Before the beginning of a public ministry, there's going to be this anointing. It's going to get even more explicit with some figures to follow. But this one is pretty explicit. So at age 30, he's anointed, and now he begins a public ministry, right? Because what was happening before that? Before he was just a boy. And what was he doing when he was a boy, David? He was being pursued by a cruel king. Sound familiar? Here we are just after Epiphany Tide, right? So after being... Pursued as a young boy by by a cruel king, now he is ready to begin his public ministry. Now he's anointed. So in this Epiphany type, we recall the mysteries of Epiphany, the, the Magi fleeing from Herod, and then also the baptism in the Jordan at age 30 of our Lord. So we see this prefigured in our Lord's illustrious ancestor, King David. So what will happen now? So he's being anointed now He's being anointed. Already, we've seen David engage in a priestly way in First Samuel, even though it's not his right, it seems to do that, that he to offer sacrifice. He's not of the priestly caste, but he does do so. He seems to be doing this anyway. So he's being anointed king, even though we're going to see that he's also going to... What sort of a priesthood will it be? Well, he's going to make that clearer later, just what his priesthood is, what it derives from, since it doesn't derive from Aaron. He's not of that tribe. But his anointing now, his beginning of public ministry, is not going to be the end of his troubles, right? So he's going to become, he's going to anoint it now to a public ministry. He's anointed king of all Israel, but his persecution will not cease, right? Just as our Lord will be anointed, and that will not be the end of his persecution on earth. It's only the beginning, right? What does our Lord do, too, if you remember, in the gospel, just to remember what we're looking for here, our Lord, in the gospel, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then he will begin his public ministry, and then, although we'll see that already there are signs of his being persecuted by the Jews, and then he will call his apostles, and they will be named, right? He'll call his apostles. How many apostles? Right, so... 12, yes. He'll call us 12 apostles. He's going to call us 12 apostles. And just as David, okay, right now he's only anointed king of Judah, but it's coming. Don't worry, it's coming very shortly, just as it comes a few chapters later in the gospel. A few chapters later now he's going to be king of all 12 tribes. Not quite yet, because now as soon as this happens, we're told that There is going to be a rival king for a moment. So Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken ish son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and Asherites and Jezreel, and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And so he is going to reign. This other son of Saul is going to reign uh, briefly, but the the house of Judah is going to stick with David. The house of Judah is going to stick with David. Eventually, though, now we'll move a little quicker through this passage, which is that... So Abner, the son of Ner, will defect and go to David's side. People will rally around David. <clears throat> and Joab, we've seen already this great general, who was already, is now under, and now is under under David. <clears throat> Joab is going to end up killing off this uh, Abner. Ishbeth says in chapter 4, will be killed. And that will be the end of that would-be king over all Israel. And when we get to chapter 5 now, David will be anointed king of all Israel. So now these next chapters are very dense. 5, 6, and 7 are supremely important, the most important chapters in the book. So beginning of chapter 5, now all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, and remember what Hebron's about? What's important about Hebron? Abraham. So he comes to Hebron, said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over all Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. What does he do next? It's amazing how this, some of this try. It really does help you. You cannot, you cannot understand. anything. I don't want to go on too long a to segue here, but you cannot understand modern politics and foreign policy if you don't understand these books. You have to read these books. And it's bad enough that we have people in politics today who don't even know the difference between uh, Sunnis and Shiites. And they can't understand why the countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran are mortal enemies. That's just the history of Islam. We have to go back even farther here to see the history of the Hebrew people. We have to understand the importance of all these conflicts, and we understand why the world today, by divine providence, continues to revolve around this little strip of land. You know, what what can we even imagine modern foreign policy without this piece of land that everybody's still fighting over? And one thing, it's a big issue. It's been an issue in, in foreign policy and the news, even in our days, is what is the capital of Israel, right? What is the capital of Israel? So this has been the sort of political standoff for a long time that technically Tel Aviv, right? Tel Aviv, which is a, uh, west of Jerusalem, that's sort of, okay, well, that's, yeah. there's the airport there, and uh, fine, fine, airport, but that's, so that's sort of the, the, the capital by compromise, but of course, that's not the way anybody wants to be. And well, and we see that's not the way David wanted it to be either, right? So. Nope. David's going to choose a capital now. So, and what's he going to choose as his capital? Well, it's a town everybody knows about. Everybody knew about it before. It's gone by different names. So in Genesis, we were told about this town. In Genesis, we were told that, what was the name of this town? Way back in Genesis 14, the name was Salem, right? Right, right, no witch trials or anything there. Not Taxachusetts, but it's uh, the, <clears throat> no, Salem, right? So this is the the peace, the town of peace, right? It means peace. And who was the king of Salem way back in Genesis? Remember who was the king of Salem who came out to meet Abraham with the sacrifice of bread and wine? Who was that priest with the M? Melchizedek, Melchizedek. there we go. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, which means... King of justice, right? King of justice and <clears throat> and he was king of Salem, king of peace. That's so St. Paul makes this point in the epistle to the Hebrews that the king of justice was the king of peace. Um, and so in chapter 14, that's where we get the name of this of this city and it's going to be called now more recently when they're coming back into the promised land in the book of Joshua, Joshua 18, it's going to be called Jebus, G-E-B-U-S. But now the definitive name for this place is going to be Jerusalem. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David dwelt in the stronghold. and called it the city of David. And David built the city round about from the middle inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And so David now will set set up Jerusalem as the capital. And this is very important. What is he going to do now with this capital? The most important thing now to do with this capital is that now that we have a definitive capital of our country, and our nation, the kingdom, a united kingdom, under one capital, Jerusalem. What has to come to the capital? The most important thing has to come to the capital now that hasn't had a real home yet. The Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant now it needs to come to Jerusalem. Now, very important, very important passage. So, now, David in chapter 6. Now, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with the people who were with him from... Bala Judah, to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Amminadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio's sons of Amminadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And what does David say when he says this? David was afraid of the Lord that day, it says. And he says, so what was David doing? He was dancing before the ark. He's dancing before the ark, leaping and dancing. I was going to say that a little more now. Let's uh, say that again. And what are the words he say? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? Does that sound like anybody else? So who says that to Mary? Elizabeth. And who's dancing? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is dancing in Elizabeth's womb because the Ark is coming. The Ark is coming. So David is a precursor, and so is John the Baptist. David dances before the Ark. So does So does John the Baptist. He dances in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. And so Elizabeth then, who speaks for her son, who's still in the womb, says, how is it that the, you should say the ark? No, she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? But the understanding is clear. The, the, the words there too, if you understand, remember St. Luke in his gospel there is translating from the Septuagint. St. Luke was a pagan who became... A Christian, and he reads the Gospel in Greek. He, Saint Luke speaks very good Greek, and and he reads the excuse me he reads the uh, Old Testament in Greek. And if you look at what he does, it's very clear. There's just simply no denying it. The words and everything he uses, the vocabulary in that passage in the Greek is so close. He's clearly copying you know, word for word this passage from Second Samuel. So very, very clear there what he's doing to say that this is this is the Ark of the New Covenant, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so that's why John the Baptist danced before it. And what does David do now? He says, <clears throat> so now David, and David, what does he do? David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was belted with a linen ephod. What does that matter? They always, they tell us these little details. What does it matter? And then they just happen what David happened to be wearing when he was dancing. What's a linen ephod? Is that what a king wears? Is that what someone in Judah from Judah wears? Is he, who wears a linen ephod? Aaron and his sons, priests. So he dresses up as a priest. Not only does he, not only does he do this dance before, he dresses up as a priest to do so. John the Baptist dressed up as a priest in a sense too. He's still in his mother's womb, but of course he's the son of Zachariah, right? son of Zachary. Zachary is a priest. Zachary is a priest of the tribe of Levi right and so they were cousins but uh, but but of different lineages they, they they those two they were related somehow though, even though coming from two different tribes but nevertheless david is belted with the linen ephod so he's dressed up as a priest and he's dancing so david and all the house of israel brought up the ark of the lord with shouting with the sound of the horn as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, remember Michael, it's spelled either M I C H O L or M I C H A L in English, so not Michael like Michael the Archangel. No. So, Michael the daughter of Saul, remember, she got married off to David finally, right? In the end, she got married off to David. Michael the daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He's really acting like a priest here. Wow. Hmm. And distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Yeah, Oh, right. And how does David respond? Hmm. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord. I will And I will make Mary before the Lord. And he says, I will humble myself more than this. I will make myself, yep. So he says there chapter 6, verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the men's, maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Mm. And so these words of David here, he says, what will I do? I, yes, I dance before the Lord. He said, I will humble myself even more yet, right? This is, again, this is, these words are very much echoed in, in what St. Paul says of our Lord in in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, what does Christ do? He'll humble himself even more than that. Not only did he take the form of a slave, he says he'll humble himself even more than that, he will take on death, the death of a cross. Now we come to, okay, that's important to note, what's the most important chapter of this book? Most important chapter of 2 Samuel is chapter 7. chapter 7, important to remember. Now we have the great covenant to David. So we've been building up to this, this whole time. First with Adam, right, in the garden. First the covenant with Adam, the garden, right? Then Noah, then Abraham, then Moses. Now finally, David. The culmination, right? This is the peak. The Old Testament's going to peak now. It's all downhill from here, right? Now when the king dwelt in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So now we have peace, right? Give rest from all his enemies round about. There's peace now. Israel. What does David say? His first thought is, this is not possible. I can't, here I am in my capital. I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, right? And, and the ark of the covenant is still in a tent. This can't be. And so Nathan knows exactly what he wants to do. He said, go. He said, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the sons of Israel, I di- did I speak a word with any the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been re- with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take my merciful love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is the great covenant with David. So the, This is the greatest of all the covenants in the Old Testament. And it, and it is, right, this is really the pinnacle. It is going really going to be downhill from here. And this is the response to what? What does David want to do? We saw that he wants, he wants to build a temple. He said, this is the right thing to do. I'm going to build the temple for, for the Lord. i build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord responds, to, no, you won't. He said, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be a house that's going to last forever. It's going to be a house that lasts forever. Your son will build the temple. Your son will build the temple. And what's going to happen? Now, that sounds like, okay, what does he say? He said, what about this son of David? He said, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, he shall build a house for my name. Well, we know what's coming there. We'd say, well, David's there's going to be a son who's going to be able to do this for David. We'll see soon, right? We'd say, well, that must be it, okay? It's going to be Solomon. Solomon will build the temple. It'll be Solomon's temple. Everybody's heard of that. Wonder of the world, right? saw it, And then he says, God says, I will be his father. He will be to me a son. You know, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hmm. And, but this kingdom is going to be forever. Well, the problem is we'll see this Solomon's kingdom going to be forever. Hmm, no, I think things are going to go not so well. Uh, it's going to start off great with Solomon and then go really rotten. What does he say? When he commits iniquity, I will chase him in with the rod of men. Okay, well that sounds like, okay. I suppose it will be an imperfect king, but I will not take my merciful love from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, we're going to just have to see how history plays out, because we're going to have to see, you know what? This this covenant that the Lord now makes with David, the promises are so great that the rest of the Old Testament will always be looking back to this covenant and saying, yes, but it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. There's no way that those promises were fully you know, fulfilled yet. There's no way. And in fact, what we'll be waiting for is what? So this these kings that follow will commit iniquity and they will be chastened as it says right they will be punished for their iniquity and it will go on until there's a, until the kingdom is seemingly destroyed forever and they're taken into captivity until until one day a successor comes one a son of david will come he himself is without iniquity but he will pay the price he will be chastised for the iniquities of all and then truly He will be the true son of God, and he will establish this kingdom forever. And furthermore, what are the promises here that were going to be made to this? So it's amazing, right? This This dynasty, this kingdom is going to be established forever. The Lord is going to, you know, He's going to build David a house, and David's successor will build him a house. We'll see that the immediately familiar that will be the great Solomon's temple. But that won't last forever. There's going to be another greater temple to be built. And the temple that will be someone's body. Mm -hmm. And... The son of David will be the son of God. God will be a father to him. It's very rare to hear the word father in the Old Testament. We don't hear it that much. We hear it applied to, of course, men are fathers, right? But when God says that he's a father, we don't hear that every verse of the Old Testament. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's pretty rare that we hear it. It's not, it never occurs, but it's, it's not all the time that we hear God calling himself a father uh, to his people. It's used sparingly in the Old Testament in comparison with the New Testament. Uh, but it's, start, it's there, it's hinted, it's that theme is there running quietly uh, underneath. Um, now as we continue in chapter 7, David now prays to the Lord. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and I have shown, and have shown me future generations. O Lord God, and what more can David say to you? Because, for you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Now, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and terrible things by driving out before his people, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. You, Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word which you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house. And do have you spoken and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, our Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. And therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, our Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord of God, have spoken with your blessing shall the house of your servant, be blessed forever. There is another way of reading this though, the way he says, just one little detail. Sometimes the translation will say, you have shown me future generations. Another reading of this would be, you have shown me the law of mankind. Oh, that would be more literally following the Hebrew. You have shown me the law of mankind. And so even David now is understanding that there's one final promise that goes along with this divided covenant. A promise which may seem like a new one at first, but it isn't. It isn't. What did God promise to Abraham? The final promise that God made to Abraham at that covenant. He said, He said, in thy seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Or in some way of reading it too, some people have translated in thy na- in thy seed, shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves right. in his name. Right? Right. It's the same promise now being made at the end. That's the final promise here of the Davidic covenant is that what's going to come now with this covenant of David is this is going to be a blessing on the entire earth and not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for the Israelites. It's for all of mankind now, this covenant, which we will see immediately fulfilled because the, the temple that's going to be built by Solomon is going to be a temple for everyone. There's going to be a section that's only for the chosen people, but then there will be a court of the Gentiles. There'll be a section of the temple where all nations can come to worship God. That will be one of the features of, the Sol- of Solomon's temple. <clears throat> Now, David continues to conquer. The actual total peace doesn't last very long. So David now goes back to fighting. And so he defeats the Philistines <clears throat> and he defeats the Moabites. And the Moabites, some of well, them uh, partially his his ancestors, you remember from Ruth. Um, <clears throat> and now in chapter nine too, David, remember I told you something how David, how uh, the house of Saul will never be completely wiped out. It will never rain again, it will never rain again. But God does not wipe out the house of Saul, right? He doesn't wipe it out completely. It will It will stay, it will stay. And we'll see that even, uh, even in the darkest times of Israel, even when the captivity comes, in fact, somehow Saul's lineage will endure because the tribe of Benjamin will not be completely forgotten, it will not be lost like the other tribes. You know, so Judah, and Benjamin, they'll hang on. And so that's how that's how one day there will be a, an illustrious, another, a new Saul who will come, right? A new Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, St. Paul. So he's not totally wiped out, right? And so David actually wants to show kindness now. And in, in, in chapter nine, he asks, he says, David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Your servant is he. And he said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said, There is the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said, He is the house of Micah, the son of Amiel at Lodar. Then the king sent and Brought from the house of Micah, the son of Amiel of Lodar. And me- Mehibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell in his faith and did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Behold, your servant, I admit I have a lot of trouble with that name. And he said to him, Do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he did obeisance and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? <clears throat> And so he shows kindness and so the line the house of Saul will, will continue. And now we know what happens, of course. David lives happily ever after and nothing goes wrong. No, now things go very, very wrong. Just as after a great beginning for Solomon, we'll see things are going to go very, very wrong with him too. But now it goes. Now what happens? So. It's very important to remember these episodes right, as much as you can, because we're going to change gears in the next episode and turn, on to, turn to a different book of the Bible, and you'll need to remember some of these episodes. I'll help you to re- recall them at that time, but what happens now? We had the greatest chapter, chapter seven. Now we have the darkest chapter, chapter 11. Well, chapter 11, what happens? Everything's going great now, right? What happens now? David gets lazy. So David says, so in the spring of the year, when the time, in the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab, so he sends his great general, he sends his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It makes a point that, that the sacred author, right, says that at the time, this is the time when kings would go out there with their, with their army, leading them into battle. Right? instead, nope, doesn't do that. What does David do? He stays home and lounges, it says he lounges on his couch, what has he do? So darkest moment in David's life. It happened one late, late afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of, El- of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am with child. So first David was slothful; he was lazy, and then he gave in to, then he gave in to lust. And then what does he do? It only makes it worse and worse and worse. So first, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So this is David's way, now, of making it better. Uh, Joab sent Uriah to David, and Uriah came to him, and it makes, this breaks your heart, because we see the the perfect nobility of Uriah. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people fared and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go now down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He cannot corrupt Uriah in any way. He was hoping that he could and appeal to him so that he would go and be with his wife and therefore cover up his sin. But Uriah is too pure. too noble for that. So David's already gone down the path of sin. He feels he has no choice now but to continue. Might as well carry it out to the end. So what does he do? In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he wrote this letter and he put it in Uriah's very hand. And in this letter, he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people (coughs) uh, fell. Uriah the Hittite was slain also. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone upon him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now now another. Strengthen your attack upon the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she made lamentation for her husband. And When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So now we'll see what's going to happen to David. So after this, the most wicked sin of his entire life. So David's been pretty crafty so far. He's a crafty man. So now now Nathan, who's been such a trustworthy spiritual counselor, the great prophet, he will now come. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. and, And so Nathan came to him and said, help me. I just need help settling a case. I'm seeking your advice, you're such a wise king. Just uh, help me with this one. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had merry many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew up with him and with his children and he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him." Oh, look. What should I do about this? Here's this rich man. He has everything he wants. And he just had one traveler come to stay with him, and he wouldn't bother to kill one of his own. He just took the one ewe lamb from this poor man. It's the only thing he had. And he took that because he didn't feel like taking from his own, so he stole it. All right. what, do I, what, should I do? what should we do with that man? And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, (laughs) said, you're the man. Thus said the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child that is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. Now... What happens here? So we had this great covenant made, right? We had this great covenant made with David. It was like a, was like a new garden of Eden, right? Things starting great. We're at the pinnacle of the Old Testament. Everything established now, kingdom forever. The son of David will be, will be a son of God, right? Everything's perfect. And what do we have? We're not surprised at this point. What happens after every covenant? A new original sin, right? A new original sin and what? And a new original sin which brings a curse, What's going to be the curse of this? He said, there will never be, he says, what? The sword. You know, you killed by the sword. And now the sword shall never depart from your house. The sword shall never depart from your house. So now your house will always be full of sin. It will never depart. What does that mean? Is the, is that, is the Lord going back on his covenant? He said, no, I'll never do that. I'm not going to go back on the covenant. He said, now it's going to be violent. It's going to be bad. So it's, it's almost as though it sounded like almost in chapter 7, like we were done. So here the covenant was fulfilled. All we need is for David to have his son reign as king and everything's finished. You know, it almost sounds like we're going to be finished with the Old Testament. We're going to go right into the new. We're going be fine. almost sounds like that. And then, nope, nope. Here comes another original sin. And now sin enters in a new curse. And so it seems now the, the fulfillment of this promise will be delayed. The promise of the covenant will be delayed. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. and When he asked, they said, food for him, he ate. And the servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive. When the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for, I said, who knows, whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. <clears throat> so it's important to, to establish this, this sin and this new curse that comes upon the house of David. That's why I read that, that passage you in full, which is nevertheless one of the most memorable passages of the book and indeed of the entire Old Testament, which you should, which you should know well. But this immediately follows then, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So he called his name Jedidiah because the Lord called him beloved. But he's going to be known though as Solomon. He's going to be known as Solomon. And we'll remind you of this in the next book when we finally get to that, when we get to First Kings, remind you of the importance of this name because after everything we've been told here and all the violence that has now come to the house of David and we're told this curse is going to remain, he wants to give his son a, a good name, a, a good name that, that's more portentous of good things. Right? So the name will be Solomon. What does Solomon mean? Peace or even Prince of Peace. Right? So Prince of Peace, Name of Solomon, his son now. Now what will go on? the wickedness in the house of, of David will continue. So something new is going is brewing now that there will be no never will he have peace again in his in his time. His life will be set by hardship now.. <clears throat> so wars will continue. But in the house of David, things will be horrible. Now things get very bad. Sin falls upon sin. And now the, those are the younger members of the house of David will imitate this, the horrible sin of their father, right? So now we see the great uprising against David will begin because of Absalom, right? So Absalom, which was the third son who was born to David. So he's going to be a major thorn in David's side from now on, and and this is where it gets really rough. Now in the Old Testament, some of the horrible, horrible sins that are committed. Why? Why is Absalom so upset? Because Absalom is very justifiably upset. He's upset because another son of David. Remember all these wives that David has now, right? So there's another son of David, Amnon, right? And Amnon does a horrible thing. What does Amnon do? So Absalom has a sister named Tamar, right? Tamar. And and Amnon will take her by force, so he takes his half sister by force, right? and and Absalom will never forgive Amnon for it. So uh, Absalom will never ever forgive this crime. Eventually, uh, he will avenge his sister. Right? will avenge his sister, but now too. Absalom, thinking that he'll never be forgiven for this vengeance that he's taken, flees in chapter 13. And now David will finally be persuaded to bring him back and even to forgive him. But Absalom, from now on, will always work to work against David. And so what will happen now? By chapter 15, Absalom will actually succeed in usurping the throne. So my chapter 15, absolutely succeed in usurping the throne. And, and these following chapters now are very interesting because we see now how often things prefigure our Lord in a, in a strange way, a way we wouldn't quite expect, right? It's not that all the precursors of our Lord are good and their actions are good and that's how they prefigure our Lord. No, sometimes they're the diametric opposite and our Lord comes to undo the evil. Nevertheless, what we see happen is very similar. Where we see happily is always, is always very similar. What happens now is, in chapter 15, so Absalom will usurp the throne, and David will be forced now to flee from Jerusalem. So other powers will now take thrones. So other powers will be ruling in Jerusalem besides David the anointed. All right? And so David the anointed one, the true king, will be forced to flee Jerusalem. And where will he flee to? So, he'll flee now. What's important is that as much as he, you might say, well, he deserves this for the evil that he did. Nevertheless, everything has a meaning. This this historical account has a mystery behind it, and it builds up to it, right? So, because where's David going to do? He's going to flee, and where's he going to go? He's going to go up to the Mount of Olives. So, whoa, okay, now we hear about the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, and that's where that's where David goes. So in verse 30, it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went they up weeping as they went. <clears throat> so David ascends the Mount of Olives weeping. Right? Hmm. So just like his descendant, who one day will be, who will go outside of Jerusalem and ascend the Mount of Olives and weep and sweat blood. Right? And his enemies and we see in these chapters will plot against him. Right? So <clears throat> enemies will plot against David and plot to blot him out. They will plot to blot him out to get him alone so they could kill him kill him and strike him down at night. So David now is fleeing for his life. So all these events that we've been saying so far, they're so important. And we're going to see how important they're recalled in the Psalms of David, right? We're going to see that very soon. And what's going to happen though to David's pursuers, those who try to rid him in chapter 17? I'm moving a little more quickly now, but so one of his persecutors Ahichapel, so very hard to pronounce these names, I know, but so he who is counseling Absalom goes and counsels this killing of David, but he fails in his attempt. And so what will he do? Moreover, Absalom refuses to follow his counsel. And so, Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, verse, 30, verse 23 of chapter 17, he saddled his donkey and went off and home to his city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So what happens there? We see that, in fact, what happens to those who try to get the king, right, who get King David alone to kill him, they end up hanging themselves. He does. He hangs himself. And who else is going to hang himself very shortly? Absalom. Absalom. But how's it going to happen to him? So this is what happens when you go after the anointed one. You go after the anointed one, the Christ. You end up hanging yourself. So Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding upon his mule. This is chapter 18. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was left hanging between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on. Oh. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, remember the general, told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what you saw him, why then did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. So here's a man hanging. Here's a man hanging. Oh, there's pieces of silver going on here too. Hmm. Okay, at any rate, what does he do? Now Joab goes and finishes it off. And he took three darts and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So that's it for Absalom. That's it for the usurper. And so that threat to the kingdom is is gone now. David mourns for Absalom. And now David will, as we get toward the end of the book, manage to reestablish his rule. So he will not be thrown off from his rule. And so now, as much as I would like to dwell on every passage here, because this book really is just so full of action and so compelling, is a very powerful book to read, we move on a little bit to stay on our, our topic of the principal prophecies and principal prefigurations of of our Lord, As so now we get to the, the end of the book, which very much begins the, very much begins the uh, excuse me, it very much mirrors the way the book begins. Remember, the book begins with First Samuel. It's all one book, remember? How does the, First Samuel begins with a great song, or right? it begins song of Hannah, the song of Hannah, the song of the woman of, of grace, right? And it's going to end that way too. It's gonna to end in chapter 22 with David giving a great song of Thanksgiving, much, much longer than, than, than Hannah's song. But that's how, that's how we're drawing to events, it. a sort of a mirror, and then just as there were, just as there were chapters leading up to Hannah's song, Now David has his great song of thankgiving and then has the great last words of David in 23, his sort of last will and testament here when he speaks about how to rule as a good king. Then we do get to the final chapters here after the song, just we had some first chapters leading up to the Song of Hannah, now we have some final chapters of the book. And then we have a very strange episode which people have a hard time understanding, but it's going to be important to get back on our topic here of the figures of Christ and that's how we're going to end the book. So in chapter 24, what happens here? It's strange. People have a hard time understanding this. Let's try to get through it. Okay. Chapter 24. So David takes a census of the people. And this is going to be a really big deal. A census. So what happens here? It says the anger. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel And it says, he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So what is Now, you may have a hard time understanding. You the Lord got so angry that he told David to go number the people. So what's going on? Well, here, example, we really haven't made much use of Chronicles uh, this time. But the the commentary that it affords there is very useful sometimes. And and here, very useful. Because in fact, when we're reading Chronicles, we, we simply have to understand that Chronicles um, either has per- filled in with the divinely inspired commentary here, or maybe even Chronicles has simply produced, the, has simply preserved the better reading. Uh, anyway, Chronicles makes it very clear here. What does it say? It says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and Satan incited David against them, saying, "So, go and number Israel and Judah." So Satan tempts David now to go number the people, to number the people. And he said, "Well, what's the big deal about numbering the people? Why is that? Why is that such a terrible?" Why is that such a terrible thing? A terrible thing uh, to number the people. Well, most uh, commentators from from ancient times uh, onward have understood this uh, to mean that the Satan tempted D- David to a great sin of pride here, to, to number the people, to know the number of his people, and to and to be able to boast of that. So in you know, order to be able to boast of his might, and and take pleasure and, and glory in himself. Over the number and strength of his armies. David knows, though, that he was tempted somehow, and then he knows he gave in to a temptation to pride because it says in verse ten, it says David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, "I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, I pray you, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly." And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Ooh, that's how he gets punished now. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So, it's really rough. This is You'd like to say, oh, poor kid. Here's, here's dad, right? Here's dad Say, would you like the belt of the crowbar? What would you like to be? It's horrible, right? So, so Except David has been pretty bad, right? He's been pretty bad for quite a few chapters now. Things have gone way downhill from chapter 7, where everything seemed to be be perfect forever, right? And so here's your choice, he says. Uh, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes? Will they pursue you, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man said, don't, I don't want those other things to happen. It doesn't sound very good. And uh, I certainly don't want to be, get pursued by armies. On the other hand, three days pestilence sounds much better than three years of famine. So that's what we'll do. So I'm going to go for that. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died from the people of Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. When the angel stretched forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of the evil and said to the angel who was working the destruction upon the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray you, be against me and against my father's house. Now what happens? Okay. So what? very important here to keep in mind what's going to happen. So there's an angel coming, right? And some of this angel's hand needs to be stayed. So, I don't remember if you remember, do you remember that happening at all yet? Oh, so far in the Old Testament, angel's hand being stayed. Isaac, right? Angel's hand stayed, right? When Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, angel of the Lord stayed his hand. Incidentally, it was after how long a time? Three days. Remember, Abraham, three days. He was going for three days and he looked up and there was Mount Moriah and he went up. He left, I said, stay, stay you down here while I go yonder and pray, right? So he goes up with Isaac to, and then Isaac is what? He's carrying the wood, everything, right? We saw that of all the, in all Book of Genesis, the most vivid prefiguration of the crucifixion of our Lord, every, every tiny detail until the Lord, until the angel of the Lord stays the hand of Abraham. And instead it's the ram crowned with thorns ram crowned with the bush of thorns, who is going to be sacrificed in his place. Well, now here again, okay, we're already seeing some similar details. Three days, right? Three days of tribulation, three days of trial, and then the angel, okay, what's going to happen here? So something's going to be similar here. Hmm, let's look out and see if it mirrors it even more. And then we're going to come, and it's amazing because this brings us to the end of the book. This really harsh, just boom, ending to the It's Not quite how we expected it to end, maybe. If we in the earlier chapters, we were hoping maybe for a happier conclusion, but this is how it's going to end with this tension, right? So what happens now? It says, and then Gad came that day. Remember, it's Nathan and Gad, these two, these two prophets, right? Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, rear an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of around the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went forth and did obeisance to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor of you. To buy the threshing floor of you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, The Lord, your God, accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it of you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded supplications for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. So how does this happen now? David offers a a sacrifice of propitiation. So David acts once again as priest and offers sacrifice on the threshing floor. So what's a threshing floor? Remember, what's a threshing floor? It's it's how you sift the wheat, right? It's a floor with lots of holes in it. Lots of holes. So you sift the wheat, the wheat from the chaff. That's It falls through, falls through the threshing floor. And that's where he's offering a sacrifice and a threshing floor. Okay. So, anything similar there? What else is there? So, what causes this all to happen, first of all? That's one don't, thing. Don't forget about that little detail we'll just before we move on, right? So, what, what caused all this to happen? What caused all this thing to, to lead to this whole this series of events, which recalls for us so well Isaac and that sacrifice? It was a census, right? A census, David. That's fair, because we don't hear the word census that often, right? Have we heard it yet in the Bible? Are we gonna hear it again for a while? No, <laughs> it's gonna be a while, but then we will hear a census again, won't we? Who's gonna ask for a census? Another king, much later, right? An emperor, in fact, will ask for a census of the whole world, and that will be the cause of David's ancestor who wasn't there, otherwise would have been up in Nazareth. David's ancestor will be shoop, have to go down exactly to the town of David and be there because of the census in order to fulfill everything that's going to follow now, this sacrifice of the threshing floor. So now I don't remember anything about Isaac in a threshing floor, no, not exactly, do do we, right? But we do remember something else which was like that a little bit later, another one which merited in so many ways the sacrifice of Christ. Remember the sacrifice, as it were, of Joseph. Joseph was in kind of a threshing floor, wasn't he? He was in a pit, right? And they pulled him out of the pit, and what does his brothers do? He was betrayed, right, he was betrayed by his, he was abandoned by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, especially a Judah or a Judas, same name. And and what did they do? How did they get rid of him? They sold him. They sold him for how much? 20, 20 pieces of silver, 20 pieces of silver. Now we don't wanna make too much into the numbers, but sometimes they strike at us nevertheless. These numbers, right? When we see numbers like that, exact numbers, it always makes us wake up and wonder, well, why did the Bible, it's divinely inspired, why did it put a divine inspired number? We say, well, what's, what was with those tw- 20 pieces of silver, right? It's, well, okay, because somehow, well, we know that our Lord wasn't sold for that. He was sold for, right? So we're not sure yet, but then what's happening now? 50, okay, so 50, so 50 pieces of silver. And what's, what are these 50 pieces used for? They're used to buy a field used to buy a field, right? They used to buy a piece of land where it's a threshing floor. What's the difference between these two stories? 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> so right? so there, there's the difference. So now we're at, we got our 30. So 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> that was the last time we heard about pieces of silver was back with, with Joseph being sold. Now we hear it again. So we perk up right away. We hear pieces of silver, oh, but now it's 50. Difference between 50 and 20 is 30. <clears throat> And it's 30, they're going to be used to buy a field too, right? mean, a field, that's another Judah. Another Judah or Judas is going to buy a field, right? With his 30 pieces of silver and hang himself. Hmm. <clears throat> so this is the sacrifice that David now as king, but also as priest, will use to build an altar to the Lord and he will offer burnt offerings and the Lord will heed the supplications and the plague was averted from Israel. So this sacrifice will be a true propitiation on the threshing floor, and truly avert the, the wrath of the Lord. So we will have to continue now, though. We're going to change gears next time because we've seen now. We've seen David very much as king, but also as priest. Next time, we're going to see him a little more as prophet as we dive into the Psalms. We'll see you next time.